Hey, Daniel, how's it going? Uh, it's good, Evan. Just uh, I'm a bit jet lagged. I came back from Denver from a wedding recently, but holding in there. How about you? Um, I am real tired. I left LA at six this morning and landed in Portland at nine. So we got a little delayed in the air. So yeah, a little tired uh, up at three, but let's make this recording work. <laughs> yeah, we got a special episode today. Uh, you want to want to talk about what we're talking about today? Yeah, today is going to be a two-part episode, so it'll be season two, episode nine and ten for us. Um, it's about estimates and where we're at, and where the industry is going today, and uh, kind of what Wilshire's take on it. Cool. Well, let's jump right in. Um, I'm going to introduce our first guest, and also like really needs no introduction, but we'll we'll do it anyways for the sake of our audience. Uh, so, with over 16 years of experience in revenue cycle and access management. Uh, they have served as the regional director of admission services at a three-time HFMA MAP award-winning multi-specialty health system in East, East Texas. Wow, that's a mouthful. Uh, they are a former board member, uh, board of directors for Naham, and the current director of people and culture at the Wilshire Group. Thanks for joining us, Tim. Thank you, Daniel and Evan. How are you all today? All right, well, I get to introduce our second guest who's becoming a regular now as well. Probably not going to need an introduction on a future episode, but let's go with it. Um, also has 10 years uh, plus years of um, patient access implementation and optimization. He's a former Epic employee, has worked at academic centers and multi-health care systems. Um, he's our director of innovation. Welcome back, Matt. Thanks for having me back. Any more of these, and I'm going to be a dedicated co-host, I guess, at this point. I'm number three, so I having you back. Good to I see think you, guys you and Tim both at this point to just co-host. We'll we'll just do production in the future episodes. <laughs> Hand off our responsibilities. Um, well, we're gonna we're gonna jump right in. Thanks for uh, humoring us with the intros, and we're gonna talk about just a little bit of history and what it is that we're talking about. Lay some groundwork. Um, just for folks who are not familiar or early stage in their careers in healthcare, uh, Tim, question for you, what is a patient estimate and, and, uh, maybe just some information that would be relevant to our listeners. Yeah. So estimates kind of came about because of, uh, the, the, um, the patient's unknown in terms of what their liability was going to be. So back in the day, uh, at the beginning of my career, a lot of estimates were done on paper, uh, and you would have uh, specialist financial counseling type individuals who would have a, a very innate uh, knowledge of payer contracts and know what our charges are, typically with large chart sheets that you have to go and find. Uh, and they basically, uh, you know, look at a schedule of appointments, start pulling all that information together and manually calculate out an estimate uh, for a patient. It was very time consuming, maybe very uh, uh, hard to do in some cases. Um, and it typically required a lot of manpower and labor. Um, and over time, over the last 20 years or so, it's, it's very much evolved into more of an automated process with technology improvements and things like that. First starting with, with vendors stepping in the game and, and providing tools that could do this for you. And so basically you would, you would give 
uh, a vendor a copy of your charge master and a copy of your contract. So they would take all that, kind of crunch it through some computer logic, and it would spit you a message on the other end. There were varying levels of success uh, of that, depending on which vendor you went with. Uh, and then from there, uh, depending on your EHR, you're starting to see more and more uh, of the big three EHRs kind of come up with their own versions of it. Um, and so that's that's where I really uh, like to focus today because I think there's a couple of really good ones out there, um, particularly Epic. And uh, yeah, that's kind of a brief history. I think to add just some commentary to that, uh, in addition, we're from right, because I'm the regulatory guy on the podcast, as Daniel's quoting now, you know, I think with pricing transparency and and with other state regulations we're seeing, especially like in California, where uh, several of our listeners actually, uh, as we're watching our stats come out, um, it, we're seeing they also have AB 1020 and a bunch of other regulations across the nation applying, you know, um, estimates, what the accuracy requirements are around estimates, um, and just being more transparent to patients up front prior to services. And there's shoppable yep. services that could be deemed as an estimate, and then and patients being able to do their own estimate versus what's an accurate estimate when you contact your health system. So I just think as we explore today's in both of these episodes topics for our listeners, think about it from also what is there's a potential regulation component as as we all talk through this that we're we might not capture it all fully, but there are some underlining factors for us all to play into today. Yeah, you're absolutely right. California, Maryland, a few different states kind of had no surprise uh, regulation before no surprise was even a thing. Uh, and so now you're seeing the whole mainstream with, with federal regulations coming in. And I think it caught a lot of hospitals um, off guard uh, and, and they weren't prepared or ready for, for implementing such a large scale estimate platform. So I, I think this podcast and, and a lot of what we can do and help with is very, very timely. So Matt, from, from, you know, Tim gave us kind of the perspective of like how estimates have grown over time. How, how have you seen estimates starting to grow over time, even from a technology basis? He started to allude to, you know, applications out there in systems, but I mean, clearly, you know, if we're talking about the big three EMR systems, they didn't just like pick up on it overnight and say, hey, as we go live day one, here, here's an estimator tool. So what are they watching as a, you know, from that perspective, how has it like slowly grown from there? Because I can remember like Tim still running, I mean, some organizations still do do a paper estimate even after their, their EMR system is completed. Yeah, good question. It sort of follows my career too. Like I used to work at Epic. I also work used to work at Experian Health, and they also have an estimates product. And I think you saw a lot of niche vendors that offered this tool, especially like if you had access to the real-time eligibility data and were working at the clearinghouse from that perspective. The two kind of went hand in hand. You had a lot of information, um, but you kind of knew, just like a lot of things, like it's only a matter of time before these large EHR vendors that have all the information already, they're able to, to wrap their heads around and really develop the tools within Epic. And even, you know, I think even some of those recommendations have probably changed over time too of like, let's wait till we get a bunch of data and, you know, wait to, to start turning this thing on. And maybe those 
vendors that were there, you know, maybe they remain a little longer than they than they needed to because they had the stickiness that, you know, they've been around for a long time. And I think that's definitely changing. I mean, that's something that Tim did a lot of work on and Owen will get into in a lot more detail later too. But yeah, as the regulations have evolved, it's just like, this is a requirement. We have to do this. And, you know, like vendors like Epic know that. It's no surprise that, you know, their their estimate tool is just as good or not better than any other bolt-on you're going to find. And so, you know, I think that's just a requirement these days and being able to do that quickly. And, and because the data is there, it's it's so much easier if you, if you know what you're doing. Tim, I got a question for you. Just thinking about, like, we do have all these regulatory requirements. And I remember I was installing like estimates and shoppable services at a health system in New York. And they're like, ain't no way we're doing that. Like, it's just like, we're not going to give transparency to our patients. And then obviously like the laws came about, but do you see like in the conversations that you're having folks wanting to go above and beyond the letter of the law or are folks just sort of staying in that, that narrow space of like, this is what we're supposed to do. And we're not going to do more than that. I think you've got a mixed bag of it. I think some, they, they go by the letter of the law just because quite frankly, they don't have the resources to do anything outside of that. Um, and, and so you're just going to do what is what exactly is required. Um, but you like my last client that I was on before before the one I'm on now, they wanted to go very very uh, far past what the letter of law was. In fact, their goal was to have uh, their accuracy be within fifty dollars of the exact match of the estimate. But the safe and no surprise that you have a four hundred dollar range, positive or negative of zero. Um, that's that's very admirable uh, from from the healthcare science organization and. and uh, uh, they got to be very successful with it, so they they got to have a, a pretty high accuracy rate um, on the uh, uh, simple imaging stuff. Uh, I think within fifty dollars, it was like eighty four, eighty five percent, something like that. And then for all estimates, it was like uh, between eighty and eighty two percent within fifty dollars of exact. So um, it, it's a mixed bag. Um, it's, it's just a simple answer to your question, but it's it's really all comes back to resource availability, knowledge. Uh, not only of estimates and, and uh, you know, how to kind of build and work through that, but, you know, just the time to do it. I think, it, yeah. Tim, correct me, and Matt, correct me if I'm wrong, but we're also starting to see these industry leaders, like, at the set, you know, that 80% or going well above and beyond, now starting to drive new regulations and expanding the regulations around, you know, healthcare reform and, and things of that nature. While we still have that $400 on an estimate, if you just to flip it, if you are giving an estimate on an ABN related item for Medicare patients, you only have $100 or 20% still. So even though, and that plays into effect because somebody's like, well, it's an estimate. Well, no, it's an estimate that's going to drive an ABN. So you need to get as close as accurate as possible from, from that standpoint, or else you're going to end up with like a patient saying, well, I don't know if I want to do that service or not in that regard. So I think it's it's where is it is it pre-service and you're doing a hard estimate for for them getting ready for a scheduled service or are they doing a shoppable estimate and and what's your variability there that you're actually producing something that's being sent to them? You know that's a that's a really good point to call out. So you know like price transparency regulations just making sure that you've got availability or, or the capability to to have more. Uh, anonymous shoppable uh, opportunities for patients to come in, basically pull up on your website and say, I want to know how much it's going to cost me with my insurance or a self-pay for this MRI. Um, that that doesn't have to be as accurate, you know, for a couple of reasons. One of the ones being that, you know, honestly, you've got a um, more often than not uninformed patient that is 
run an estimate. Um, so you, you have to kind of give some leeway with that. But when you're talking about an estimate that's been scheduled and is, is on the books for, say, the next week, you have to have a significant amount of uh, uh, build in place to make sure that, that is much more accurate because the, that, that falls under no surprise act at that point versus price transparency. Yeah, I remember the uh, the early days of right when price and transparency started. I was writing a blog post about it for whatever reason, and um, you know, just kind of looking through various healthcare systems websites to see like what what were they displaying for information, and it was you know it was tough. Like it was not very user friendly. They met the letter of the law, but you know, like people were trying their best to try to get this information out there uh, with yep. the, the resources that they had, and obviously things have evolved a lot since then. Yeah. Well, that was like just the raw file too. It was like just the raw chart file. Yeah. A lot of times. Yeah. Like here's typically it was computer refile. That's not a very nice thing to anybody. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Like here's a link to this Excel document that's out there that has our <laughs> charts in it. Like, hope it's right. Yeah. Yeah. Go ahead and dig through the thousand lines. See what you, see what you can get for me. <laughs> uh, so thankfully, we've made we made some progress there. <laughs> Evan, I got a question for you. For our newer listeners, Medicare ABNs, uh, do you want to explain what that is and uh, how that plays into our estimates conversation? Yes. So an uh, ABN is a Medicare Advanced Beneficiary Notice. And what that essentially says is it, it's informing our Medicare patients that Medicare doesn't cover the service. So it could be a lab, it could be a diagnostic test, um, something of that nature. It's just not part of their Medicare coverage, uh, Part A or Part B. So when that occurs, a health system has the opportunity to educate the patient on, and in the regulation actually requires the physician to do the education to the patient on what are the alternate services that are available to them. If the patient still wants to proceed with the recommended course um, based off of the procedure and the diagnosis code that the provider is linked to say, this is why this service is needed, if the patient still wants to move forward with that, a uh, health system generates the ABN or the advanced beneficiary notice, notifying them how much they are going to pay as a self-pay component of that. Um, so the accuracy on that has to be, uh, uh, I think it's $100 or 20% uh, um, within a 20% range. If it's beyond that, you can only charge up to the $100 or 20%. So health systems have to develop when an ABN's um, signed a way for patient access or the professional medical groups to scan that into their EMR system, put a flag for the biller to carve that off of the claim to exclude that from being part of the claim and then drop it to self-pay and have it run a check for somebody to confirm that the ABN actually matches the price or is it within that compliant range and then drops that off. The hard part is, is we're now starting to see Medicare patients starting to shop and request estimates as well for services because they have Medicare Advantage plans after Medicare applies. So they might have Medicare as prime and AARP, an AARP plan as a secondary, and they want to know, yeah, Medicare is going to cover this, but sometimes my, my supplemental plan will cover more and sometimes it won't. And we need to, and they want to know that from their estimate component so that they know, you know, is it going to be 
for their out-of-pocket network portion or their out-of-pocket portion for their Medicare component, is that going to get picked up or not in that estimate component? So that's where we're starting to see more and more Medicare patients become more educated and start asking for estimates in their own component as well. Now, Daniel, imagine uh, doing that 20 years ago without a central uh, EHR and, and having to have people do all of that because that, that was a complex nightmare on a, on a good day. Uh, so, I mean, yeah, the, the EHR is making things so much simpler in so many ways for that, too. One other thing to point out with um, Medicare and ABNs is that while I could go out with a managed care and I need to go get a pre-off for said service for like a Blue Cross plan, and I know exactly how to run that estimate, it wouldn't necessarily require to do that. But with a Medicare, the re kind of the reason the ABN came around is because Medicare doesn't require at the time, they're starting to now, but Medicare didn't really require pre-auth of any kind and we would just bill to it. But you would find out on the back end, the patient would, that this wasn't a service covered by Medicare and then oop, all of a sudden they've got a massive bill that healthcare systems were billing to the patient. So ABNs came into play to help kind of prevent stop healthcare systems from doing that. Sorry, you couldn't find my mute. <laughs> so, so with that, what like what are some you know general background things thinking about estimates that people should start to consider? And this is going to lead us out to a break uh, really quick. So I'd love to get both Matt, yours, and Tim's kind of thoughts on it um, right before we jump over to that for our first break of today. Uh, from my perspective, you know. It's, if you have your estimate tool turned on, and I've heard this a couple of times from a couple of different people, but an estimate tool in a lot of ways is a, uh, a bit of a report card on how a lot of your upstream um, systems are built, specifically like your real-time eligibility, your charge master, a lot of your other uh, items like benefit collection, which is what feeds the estimate tool. So if you have bad upstream processes, you're going to see a bad outcome or a non-accurate outcome out of your estimate. Um, so one thing that I would tell uh, a lot of the uh, listeners to kind of focus on is, is how that looks or how they can improve things within the RTE, within the benefit collection, et cetera, um, and then start focusing on improving your estimate protocols, processes, et cetera. Matt? Yeah, super integrated process, like Tim mentioned, spanning pretty much the entire revenue cycle, both on the process end, but also on the epic configuration end or you know, EHR configuration end, really. So that's why it's really challenging to do it right, uh, I think, because you got to engage a lot of people. You got to have a lot of people to, and it's not just like flips and switches here in a lot of these things, although there is some of that for sure, but it takes a lot of analysis to really understand what's filing from RTE and what is in your benefits collection and how are we strategizing where we want to do it? You know, that used to be a big conversation about where we were collecting as in the puzzle. And now we're kind of transitioning into, you know, most places where we're doing it. So huge, huge integrated project, which is, you know, really requires some, some foresight and some planning to make successful. Perfect. Well, let's take a quick break and we're going to dive into both of those in a quick, quick second. Hello there. Are you seeing intense competition for your revenue cycle jobs? Are you unable to compete head on with your competition? Don't worry, the Wilshire Group specializes in consultative, 
advisory services, and direct hire referrals. When you're faced with a vacancy, have a hard-to-fill position, or need to supplement your existing team, we have proven revenue cycle experts to partner with. Wilshire has a track record of hiring candidates in less than 30 days. Smaller organizations can benefit from us advertising the position, a larger pool of candidates. Partner with us, dependable, professional partners. Industry Alliance. We have access to the top talent in the industry, a larger pool of candidates to select from. We will find you the very best candidate faster while delivering an unbeatable candidate and hiring experience for both of you. Let us do the heavy lifting when it comes to the labor market. The Wilshire Group, experience you can trust, results you can count on. And we're back. All right. So I've heard, I think you both say that this is like a very integrated project, takes a lot of strategy, a lot of planning. Uh, Tim, I'll, I'll pose this to you, but Matt, I kind of want your ideas as well. Uh, you get plugged into an organization. You're like, I'm doing estimates. I'm, I'm getting started. Who's your main point of contact? Like, who are you working with? And uh, how are you getting that team in, included in those conversations? There's not going to be one main point of contact, unfortunately, but to, to your second part, there you absolutely going to need a team to improve this. So you're going to want somebody from uh, your contracting or managed care type departments to be around the table. Uh, you're going to have to have some epic build folks around the table uh, for a couple of reasons. One, from the RTE and benefit collection side. One, to make sure that your contracts are actually loaded and loaded correctly into uh, to epic. Uh, I found that in a lot of organizations, they may use Epic and they may use Epic well, but not all the contracts are present. Uh, and without that that big piece, your your estimate strategy is going to go down a very different path than say somebody that does have everything looked in there. So definitely those people, uh, you're going to want patient access, financial counseling at the table, rep integrity is probably a good person to have as well. Um, you know, I think that's kind of the big players, um, just to make sure that you you're covering all your bases. Whatever Epic build folks. You bring around the table, make sure that person is uh, very well versed in, in real time eligibility and how to pull the appropriate data out of RTE and put it into the benefit collection. Yeah, yeah, that seems like a key success factor. Sorry, I'll, I'll add to that. Like a key success factor for you, Tim, was you know having a real time eligibility analyst that was super yeah. experienced, really knew um you know, how to, how the benefits filed into Epic, how we could display that information. It's really like a dance with the devil trying to work with, you know, these real-time eligibility vendors to like figure out, yep. and even the payers themselves, you know, I request this bit of information. Where is that coming back in my response? If I want to get deductible and coinsurance information for this type of service versus this one, where am I getting that? And so like having someone that's really good at those patient access build components, especially RTE, seems huge from my perspective. Yeah. Yep. Well, and a lot of organizations, 
they kind of approach RTE to say, okay, I'm going to pull service type code 30, and, and Matt, I'll let you elaborate on exactly what that means more than, because you know better than me. Um, but they'll they'll tell their tool to pull service type, type code 30, and that's the benefit information that they bring back into the tool. Uh, but the problem is, is that 30 will have typically the general benefits, but a lot of the more specific uh, pieces of information don't live under that code, that section of code for the RTE. And so you're missing a lot of information when you're trying to like run an estimate for a, a MRI or run an estimate for like a mammogram or something like that. I know you mentioned pulling and contracting in that sometimes Epic contracts aren't are built right or whatever you're getting your contract data. Um, as someone who builds contracts or, or maintains contact, contracts, I think it's the most difficult piece of build in the system. It, it's really hard to get right. And you're having to do this across however many pairs you have out there, which could be 50, 100, however many contracts you have. Um, but I do think that there's an option in Epic to look at historical pricing as well, to say like, this is what historically yeah. has been paid. Um, so if you're like either like, yeah, heart, uh, heart palpitation, you're like, oh man, our contracts are, are not right. Or <laughs> uh, we, we don't necessarily want to look into that world. Uh, sometimes historical options or pricing can be an uh, opportunity as well. I, th I think, yeah. And that was the other strategic path that I had alluded to is that if you're not going to do things with the contract, which from my perspective, is the most accurate, most accurate path, then historical estimates are going to be your best bet for sure. But I think from a regulatory standpoint, we're starting to see it has to be more accurate. And the problem with going based off of historical is you're not factoring in pricing components and annual pricing increases. So therefore, you're not really getting an accurate estimate for your patient off of what the current pricing is. You can use the historical component to say, hey, it's the, for like a total need, these are the types of, these are the types of number of hours that the average is, and you can grab your averages in what the appropriate CPT codes and, and stuff that are going to roll into that. But um, you want to make sure though, that you're still pointing it to your current fee schedules and pricing. And that's where you know, as Tim alluded to revenue integrity, you want to not all organizations revenue integrity department is all encompassing of charge master as well. So you want to make sure that you have both elements because you want somebody to check to make sure those are the accurate charges that they're anticipating for that service to come through. And then you want to make sure that the pricing is accurate from your charge master component of it. So if you have an integrated team, usually it's one and done. But if you don't, you want to make sure that you're bringing in both of those groups at the table as well. Mm -hmm. um, and you can do it in smaller subsets too. I mean, it, the other portion of estimates that we have not talked about here is, you know, the future regulation of having to have a combination estimate. And I think that, you know, that's going to be something I, I would love to get Tim, yours and, and Matt's take on how, how organizations, whether they're an Epic client or not, how are they going to have to do that more accurately? Because not everybody's an integrated health system, but you're supposed to, the hospitals are going to be required to provide an estimate for both the professional service and the hospital service. So, um, you know, what are some of your guys' takes on how to do that as an integrated system? And then when you're not, what are the key things that you guys see they're having to partner with those, you know, major contracted groups like anesthesiologists or others to get get their pricing points? Well, I think that is the one big remaining, you know, migraine for lack of a better word that, that a lot of uh, healthcare systems kind of have is how they're going to have that integration come into play. Integrated systems definitely have a leg up on a lot of that because a lot of their surgeons are going to be employed, their anesthesiologists are employed, et cetera, et cetera. Um, 
but you're still going to, I mean, even an integrated system, more than, more often than not, you're going to have some kind of contract of service that comes in uh, that you've got to account for in your estimate. Uh, one of the really big ones, um, instead of having like a radiology, employed radiologist team, you'll have a contract that third-party radiologists read. Um, that, and if you're having a knee replacement after that surgery, they're going to x-ray your knee to make sure everything is in the right spot, right? So there's going to be a read that's going to be charged as, as a result of that. Um, so working through the contract and legally bits to make sure that that third party's charge structure or charge master is kind of set up and in play within your estimate tool is going to be really interesting to kind of watch play out. I don't think anybody's really figured out how to do that well yet um, because nobody wants to play in the same sandbox. Everybody's kind of very protective of the charge master and not wanting to, to let other people see it. They're kind of worried about what the downstream implications are. Um, so it's, it'll be interesting to watch. I, I don't know if there's really a good answer yet outside of the fact that integrated systems have a very much a leg up on others. Um, and then you're really gonna have to put some some ironclad contracts in place to make sure that everybody kind of plays nice with each other once that regulation comes into play. It's almost like you need a, a third party that like takes both the hospital and professional data if they don't wanna share their fee schedules and just like pr provides estimates to patients like outside of the inner workings of the organization. Uh, but I don't know what yeah. that would look like. Well, well it's I, don't, hard. I, don't, I don't know if a third party would do that because uh, at the end of the day, you're still going to have to have typically the healthcare system, like the representative from the healthcare system present that estimate back to the patient. So that charge is going to have to be present. It's going to kind of be there all for the world to see, unfortunately. And um, it's, it's just going to be interesting to kind of watch how, especially your bigger health systems kind of tackle that particular problem. Um, it's, yeah, it's just not an easy thing to go through, unfortunately. <laughs> yeah, I know a lot of our, our, the clients that we're working with are starting to go ahead and do both PB and HB estimates and combine to make it set up. So like, you know, the, the provider clinic can actually run the estimate for that surgery right there and then, and then vice versa, if the patient calls and, you know, customer service at the hospital, they can, they can do it if they're not an SBO, or even if they are an SBO model, somebody else can produce the estimate. Um, and then your insurance verification team is already, or, or pre-registration team, depending on where you put it, is typically rerunning your estimate as well um, for, just to confirm that what was initially provided is, ac is still accurate and something hasn't changed. Um, kind of talking that through a little bit further, you know, and we're talking about in pulling in pricing transparency. I mean, the regulations for the physician side is not as heavy as it is on the hospital side. And I think that will be something that we have to keep a pulse on through healthcare reform is all hospital systems have to publish their charge masters and, and have all of their, you know, their top 300 shoppable codes um available but you're seeing more and more them just post the entire charge master it doesn't mean a lot to a patient but it does to a health system especially if the cpt codes are populated and tied to it so they can actually pull it in or the drgs um out there as well for for those procedures that require inpatient overnight midnight stays and qualify for inpatient stay so that it, you don't typically see it as an individual procedure in that regard so um more on the shoppable side and we can cover that in a future podcast but i do think it's one one of those things that we all have to consider as part of, as part of our estimate challenges is how do we pull that information in more accurately and timely mm -hmm. going back to rte so 
what is your guys' recommendation to get a payer on board? So I, you know, there's, I know in the state of Washington, they actually have a regulation with their stronger pricing transparency regulation that requires the payer to send back information, whether they're in or out of network, but they're still struggling. I'm seeing Blue Cross and Anthem still struggle with populating that information when I'm talking with my peers or all of our peers up there and, and you know, colleagues through HFMA. But what are you seeing, like, what are some of those challenges or have you heard that health systems are doing to get that as accurate as possible um, outside of, you know, a third-party vendor? Because even that doesn't mean that the payer's sending the right thing. And as part of that, what is RTE for some of our newer listeners who are curious about <laughs> this, this acronym that we're throwing around? All right, let me start on this. let me start on this one, Tim, because I have a little bit of experience, I suppose. So, um, RTE, real time eligibility, you know, the ability within an EHR to send a send a response through an intermediary, uh, typically to a payer to to just, uh, determine is the patient eligible for coverage, what are their benefits, bring that information back into their EHR, display that information to the user for you know, registration purposes, things like that. So. I'm getting registered, I'll send the query out. You know, Matt has Anthem Blue Cross. The query goes out, Anthem Blue Cross says, yep, Matt's eligible. Here's some of its benefits data. Let's file that information back into Epic and Matt gets checked in for his appointment and he goes on from there. Now, the interesting thing about it, uh, thing about it is like, yeah, of course there's just, do I have coverage or do I not? But also within that is, you know, what benefits do I have and not just, what benefits do I have if I go to my primary care physician and you know have a $15 copay for my office visit? But what are my benefits for radiology versus mental health benefits versus you know insert specialty here? And uh, you know as Evan was alluding to, there's a lot of differences in you know what the payers are even setting back. So even if you're working with a, a vendor like Experian or Change Healthcare or one of those big you know eligibility vendors that's you know, aggregating those transactions for you, there's a ton of differences in what you get back for benefits data or additional information that might be useful. And so like I alluded to before, you gotta kind of try to figure out, you know, well, or this payer, what am I getting back? And how can I leverage that data both discreetly into my EHR or, and also, you know, therefore discreetly into my estimates um, so that it's usable, so that it's readable, so that a user can like look and see and like determine what you know that that benefits information is and it's like even with regulations like you, you talked about evan you know the payers like they're not all at the same spot in terms of what they what they send back and it's a lot of work to try and like make that standardized you know as you're getting all that that data back yeah um I mean, I could, I could definitely explain it, but I think you'd probably do a better job of it. Can you kind of walk through, like, you know, how service type codes, you know, kind of came into being and, and what, what, why that structure from the RTE feed is important and, and how that's going to kind of help downstream? Yeah, I'll try to, you know, not get too technical, I suppose. But, you know, when you send out an eligibility query, um, you request essentially a service type code. So the standard one is 30. Um, that's just like your general hospital benefits. And the payer receives that transaction, sends back their response. And, you know, I, I you send me a 30. Here's the benefits I want to send you back for this payer. And 
you know, within that, it'll have lots of different information. Like I said, the primary care benefits, general specialist benefits, you know, um, the different specialty specific benefits like radiology, so on and so forth. Um, now, standardly, that's what you do. You send out this service type, you get a lot of information back. That's what really drives what you file into Epic or into your EHR, which would then drives how you build out your estimates. Obviously, if you don't have the deductible information or the coinsurance information, it's pretty challenging to, to calculate some of that patient liability information. Now, of course, the fun part is you can send different stuff and you can get different stuff back. That's like the easiest way I will put it. So if you send 30 plus, you know, one of the other service types that, that you can send, there's like probably 150 of them. I don't know the, the list off the top of my head, but you pick a couple of the other of those and the pair might actually respond with different information. And of course, that's different to not just at a pair level, but at a plan level. And so you have really quickly, you can see how complex this is going to get. Different pairs are responding different information based on what you request. And so if your initiative is, I want to get radio, I'm like, my focus is radiology estimates. I want to get that information on every response, make sure that I have that information to feed my estimates. Um, you know, for maybe 90%, sending that, that service type of 30 gets you all the information you need. Cool, you're good to go. Now for the like 10% where it doesn't, is it worth trying to figure out like, if I specifically request radiology benefits in the eligibility query, will it add more value to um, you know, my response so that I can file this more discreetly? And so very quickly, like you can kind of go off the rails of like, you've got this big matrix of, you know, for this pair, if I send this, I get that, that, and that. And like, is that worth it? Is it worth to like put all this time and effort, send all these queries to do it? I remember when I worked at Experian Health, like trying to aggregate some of this data, like, yep, they've sent us 50,000 transactions with this service type. Here's like the 23 service codes we get back in response so that the, you know, the person that's implementing estimates can, can build off this out. So all that to say, it's like, it can get really complex really fast. The payers do a lot of different things. You're sort of beholden to that sometimes. And so like, is the juice worth it, right? Like, is it worth spending a bunch of time trying to get this additional data when it might not, might not file it? And, you know, sometimes, surprise, like you might have to split the, tra like the clearinghouse will split the transaction. You get charged double for doing it based on the number of service types you, you spend. Like then if you're getting charged per transaction from the real-time eligibility vendor, which is pretty typical, you're sending three transactions to one just to get these additional benefits so that you can calculate an estimate and maybe get paid on the front end. I don't know if that's worth it too. So like, I know Tim spent a bunch of time like doing something like that and doing all this analysis on for this project, which is, you know, in the end turned out to be beneficial, but it like really gets into the complexity of like what is going on there. And you can tell by my like 10 minute long winded explanation there like one i'm pretty passionate <laughs> about it but two it's like gosh it is really complex and like i just shudder like thinking about this, this type of thing and that's just the beginning right cool. that's like one small piece of this whole estimates ecosystem that you're trying to file in there to get the accurate picture well and that's exactly why i wanted you to explain it because you do a much more detailed job than me but that just reinforces why you're going to need a very well versed specialist to come in here and kind of help with that particular part of the bill. Uh, because 
have somebody that's, that's like brand new to RPE or been in the collection or whatever, you, your downstream is going to suffer because of that. So it's, it's you know, shameless plug for Wilshire here, but we've got those people. We could do that. Yeah. I, I think that's why we also continue to see estimates. A lot of organizations not have as high percentage of accuracy rating because they don't have those Correct. people and skill set to jump in there and, and do that level of analysis. And that's why you're also still not seeing a full recovery as what like a, a reduction for of uh staff because a lot of the RTV vendors out there are like, hey, you could have some FTE savings with this, but for the validation because of the in, the inaccuracy of the information coming back from the payers currently, you're seeing health systems still say, hey, we want to capture and make sure that what we're getting is accurate so we're still putting our verifiers and our pre-service team on on those reviews um, to ensure that it's coming back correctly so you know it's a really surprising um stat evan uh just just to kind of you know comment on what you said there uh epic pulse for for our early careers listeners uh it, it's a uh, central tracking uh basically allows organizations to um, you know, pace themselves against how other organizations are doing with a lot of different KPIs and metrics and things. But the the, the average Epic pulse from what I've seen from the different organizations I've been with, the top quartile for Epic accuracy is typically like in the 75 to 77% range, which is scary low um, when you think about it. And, and, and it just, again, reinforces the need for the specialty build and the time investment to make sure this thing is done right. Right. Well, on that note, we're going to take another short break. We'll be right back. Claim Capital is a team of ex-Epic staff focused on preventing denials. Instead of showing what was denied, which is the standard for other solutions available today, Claim Capital pinpoints why claims are denied. By training machine learning models on an organization's claim and remittance data, Claim Capital can identify the causes of denials and recommend changes in EHR build or workflows to prevent them from happening in the future. With a completely HIPAA-compliant infrastructure, no software implementations, and a zero-risk pricing structure, organizations can quickly and safely recover lost revenue. Well, I think, Daniel, normally we would go to the Wilshire Lab at this point, but uh, we don't have any questions as of yet uh, for, the, for this episode. So, Well, yeah, we can, we can uh, wrap up here. Thanks, Matt. Thanks, Tim, for joining us. Uh, and for bringing your smiling faces here this Friday afternoon is when we're recording. Um, <laughs> if uh, listeners want to reach out to you or engage with you on uh, and estimates and having you plugged in, uh, what's the best way for folks to contact you? Tim, we'll start with you. Yeah, so I've got a uh, Wilshire email. t.holland at the Wilshiregroup.net. It's a great way to get a hold of me if you need anything. Also have a LinkedIn profile you have to look up. Uh, Tim Holland uh, is, is, is what I have on there, and, and uh, I'm more than happy to help wherever I can. Yeah, same for me. Um, M.Parent at thewilshiregroup.net, or definitely hit me up on LinkedIn. Uh, I got a couple comments and notes from our last Vision Trees uh, podcast. So I appreciate that, that, that for all you that listen. So, yeah, definitely hit me up on LinkedIn. Love to chat more about it. Nobody's ever reached out to me on LinkedIn. Has anybody ever reached out to you, Evan? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Next time I'll say no. <laughs> Shout out to Heath Hanwick from Epic for reaching out. I appreciate it. 
We got to build up your celebrity profile there, <laughs> Daniel. Or maybe they've reached out to me. I just am not following close enough. Or maybe it was just, I thought it wasn't podcast related. But It could be also your, uh, <laughs> doesn't LinkedIn, they have like your direct ones and then like you're hidden in the background and you have to be like logged in online. I, that's where I've seen some mm. of them. So, <laughs> all right. Well, everybody, that's it for us today. Uh, and we'll see you next time. Bye-bye. If you liked today's episode, continue to join Wilshire Wednesdays. You can follow us on LinkedIn or Twitter at Evan underscore Wilshire. Daniel can be followed at Daniel underscore TWG. Wilshire Group at TWG Health. On Facebook at the Wilshire Group or on Instagram at Wilshire IT Revcast. Remember, if you prefer to watch, come check us out at the Wilshire IT Revcast YouTube channel. If you have an inquiry, want to share your thoughts or get additional information on today's episode, email us at Wilshire Podcast at the Wilshire Group. The best way to support this podcast is to review, rate, and subscribe. See you next time. Bye-bye. The Wilshire IT Revcast is hosted, produced, and engineered by Evan Martin and Daniel Bianchini. It is executive produced by Gretchen Case, Hank Smither, and Spencer Thielman. The Wilshire Group, experience you can trust, results you can count on.